I also want to share with you a little bit about what to expect this coming week as I begin to get my feet wet here at the church a little bit. In terms of communication, you can expect that from the office you will always receive a, an email that goes out on Tuesdays. That will primarily be for about announcements and updates and informational things. Be looking in that email for ways that I'm going to suggest or request that you can be part of the serving teams here at the church. Uh, I'm still learning who does what, and I am still learning ways that we can connect people uh, to ways to serve, so expect that I'll be asking. And also, you can expect as communication, every Thursday, I am going to be sending you an email, that, as long as you are on the church email list, that will be about uh, the Bible reading plan. Now, if you are not currently reading through a Bible reading plan, I encourage you to jump on board with the one we are going to be doing here. There are updates that have been done to it. So if you had the original back in January, there are a couple quick things that were shifted around. So I encourage you to pick up a new copy. They're on the table in the back. Also, we can send you a digital copy from the church office that will be attached this week. I want to encourage you to read the Bible together with the congregation for many reasons. But one of them is that as we are getting on the same page in terms of practice, we can be on the same page literally of the Bible together learning the same things at the same times with one another, and that will be a big blessing and encouragement. So expect to receive information about that every Thursday um, from me. Um, speaking of the Bible, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. I would ask that you please open your copy of the Scriptures to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 7. As you're turning there, allow me to give you a little bit of a roadmap of what to expect as we move forward through the next several weeks. There are various forms of preaching, and the type of preaching that I often employ, probably 99% of the time, is what is called exegetical preaching. And what that means, and simply put, is that I just go from the beginning of a book to the end of the book, through every single verse, verse by verse, examining each one closely, and making sure that the main point of the text is the main point of my sermon. What preaching is all about is just saying what God said and in in explaining it. And so that's mainly what I will do, and uh, it's basically like the idea of taking a microscope and putting every single word under that microscope and examining very closely each page of the Bible. But there can also be an advantage to zooming out and moving away from the microscope and hopping into an airplane and getting the 30,000-foot view as we look down at the big picture, the whole scope of Scripture, so that we might know the meta-narrative of the Bible. That's what I intend to do for the next several weeks. I want to make sure that we are grounded on foundational truths that are very important to the faith. So today we are going to hear the first of three sermons that are asking the question, what is the message of the Bible? What is the point that God is trying to get across? And then after we get that question answered, we are going to spend three weeks implementing that question by answering it in the way that we see what is the meaning of the church. So if we want to put it this way, for the next three Sundays we're going to be hearing what is the message, and directly after that we're going to be learning about what is the mission of the church. The message has been proclaimed many times by many people, but it has only ever been comprehended by those who have been given ears to hear from God Himself. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray that God would give us ears to hear what He is saying through the Word to His church. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, uh, we desire You. We are thankful for You. We are grateful that You have done so much through Jesus Christ to redeem and restore 
and renew us. And so, Father, today as we come together and focus on the message that you have put together in the Scriptures, the message that you want us to know, the message of life, God, I pray that as we come to this, we would know and understand and learn and grow. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray they would be convicted, confronted, and even redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, happy Resurrection Day. He is risen. He is alive. And we are so grateful that we can know that our Savior, who died, is still with us. He is ruling and reigning today to be the Savior. We use this term resurrection often, but it's a funny word because resurrection is a word that you can only really understand in relation to other words and other concepts. It's very difficult to teach a small child about the idea of resurrection because they have a very little understanding of what it means that something dies. If you speak to a two-year-old, they don't know what it's like to be at a funeral. They don't know what it means that life has gone out from the body of an individual. So it's impossible to comprehend the notion of being brought back to life unless someone first understands the nature of life and death itself. And that's like saying a fish probably knows that they live in water, and you probably know that you are alive, but just like the fish, you probably take for granted the situation you find yourself in this morning. We have become so used to the idea of being alive that we don't really think much about the alternative most of the time. But today, we're going to fly far over the Scriptures, looking down with our 30,000-foot view to examine the nature of life and death itself, because those two words are central themes in the meaning of the message we call the gospel. So if you're with me in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, you will see what occurred the very first time a human being was brought to life. It said, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed life, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Unlike all of the other creatures that God made, he did all of the other creation by voice. In terms of man, he bent down low, he formed him out of the dirt, and then after making him, he breathed life into him. If this had not occurred, if Adam would not have received the breath of life, he would have remained a pile of dust, never inhaling, never exhaling, never living. He would have just been a pile of dirt. But God breathed life into this man, making him the very first living human being. Here's the point. God gives life. Now, that might sound simple, but if you do not, under, do not understand this, you do not understand the gospel. God gives life. Paul explains it this way in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, that it is in Him that you live and move and have your being. This means that your living is not merely the outworking of an act that occurred on Adam years ago. This is not just cause and eventual effect. It is not just that you are the product of your parents. You are not just initiated by God, you are continually sustained, and eventually your life will be ended by God. You are a dependent creature. The life that you live right now, you live because God is allowing you to live. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job 33, verse 4. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139, verse 13. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. You have life in your body because God 
has had mercy to allow you to have life in your body. The only reason that you continue to live is owing to the fact that God continues to give you physical life. It is in Him that you live and move and have your being. Think back to Genesis for a moment. Remember the creation story. Now, think to yourself and ask the question, what is the very first thing that God ever said to Adam after he created him? Now, if you're just reading through your Bible from Genesis 1 through verse chapter 2, then you're actually not going to see this in order because what you see in chapter 1 is a summary of all of creation. Chapter 2 then goes back to the creation of Adam and zooms in on the particular details. And so at the end of chapter 1, you have God speaking to both Adam and Eve and saying to them, be fruitful and multiply. But then if you go to chapter 2, you find that God has a conversation directly after the creation of Adam before the creation of Eve. So here we see the very first words that God ever said to a human being in the Bible. He says in verse 16, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. On the first day of Adam's life, in the first sentence that we know God spoke to Adam, God warned him about the stakes. It was a warning that this precious gift of life could come to an end, and the cause of the end of life would be death and sin. Adam and Eve rejected God's rule over them, and for that they died. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Like a weed making its way through the concrete, death made its way into creation through the sin of Adam. And the disease of death was passed down from generation to generation till this very day. The rest of the Old Testament is all about death. After Genesis 3, we get to Genesis 4, and we have these brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother, who was made in the image of God. Flash forward to chapter 6, and it tells us that man had devolved to a violent culture, and it says that every thought and intent of the heart of man was evil continuously towards God. So what does God do? He kills, takes life away from nearly 100% of the world's population, only leaving eight who remained. Now let's talk about fairness. The matter of life and death is not about fairness. If life and death were about fairness, we would all be dead. If life and death were about fairness, then there would not have been eight people on that ark. There would have been no people left. Well, after the flood was uh, completely finished, and there were only eight who remained, and the world's population began growing once again, the problem of death did not go away because the problem of sin did not go away. As soon as you get off the ark, you see Noah and his sons immediately falling short of the glory of God. Therefore, the world continued to be filled with physical death, and you will see that one of the most common phrases in the entire Old Testament is the phrase, and he died. And there's a lot more if you add to it the phrases like, and he was gathered to his fathers. There are many, many times where it tells us that people die. In fact, if you just go to Genesis chapter 5 alone in the first few verses, eight times it says, and he died. This is how long he lived, and he died. And this is how long he lived, and how many children he had, and he died. We all die. 
death comes for all men because all sin. That includes me and that includes you. But there is much more to life and death than just our physical existence. This life that we live is just a very small part of our existence. It's easy for us to trust our five senses, and it's easy for us to make the incorrect assumption that we look around us and see this is all that there is. It's the faulty understanding that you are only you from the moment you take that first breath until the moment you take your last. But you are an eternal being. You have a distinct origin, yes. You have a beginning, yes. But you will never end. This is true because you are not only a physical being, you are also a spiritual being. Your body will come to a conclusion, but your soul will go on forever. We see this all over Scripture, but it's even evident in what we've already read in what God said to Adam in that very first sentence. God told Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. In that day. But Adam ate of the fruit in Genesis chapter 3, and then we get to Genesis chapter 4 and realize that he lived roughly another 930 years before that body was taken away, before his breath ran out. He was a sinner, and therefore he physically died. But he died that day, spiritually. There was no more life in his soul. But what does that have to do with Easter, you might be asking? This is not the sermon I was expecting you to preach on Resurrection Sunday, Pastor. Well, it has everything to do with the empty tomb. Today we rejoice that life comes after death. Consider Jesus. Jesus has a life very similar to yours in some ways, but it is very different in one very significant way. You are a dependent being, but He is not. Jesus has always existed. He had life in Himself. His life was not originated by anyone else, nor is His life sustained by anyone else. Jesus, as part of the Godhead, has life, is life Himself. You are dependent. It is only in Him that you live and move and have your being. So John tells us, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. There was never a time when Jesus was not. His Spirit has always existed. But there was a time when Jesus was not a man like you and I. God's divine plan of redemption was to send Jesus to become part of what Jesus Himself created. Jesus entered into the world the one that he made by becoming part of the human family. He took on flesh and he added to himself a human nature, being both fully God and fully man. The God of the universe became like you. Think of that. The God without limits had to sleep like you. The God of the universe who needs nothing would get hungry and thirsty like you. The God of the universe felt human emotion, and wept like you. He was exactly like you, except without sin. The wages of sin is death. This means that Jesus, had He not been executed, would have lived much longer than Adam's 930 years. In fact, right now, Jesus would still physically be living if there were no 
uh, plan of redemption that he were to go to the cross because his life could only be ended if there was a death penalty due to sin. And because there is no sin in Christ, he would physically still be alive walking around on earth today. Being the righteous, holy, sinless Son of God, it is only reasonable, logical, and consistent that Jesus would never taste the results of Adam's sin. But Jesus died. How do we manage that? He died because he made an exchange. He took the sin of all of the people who would ever be saved and placed them on his shoulders, and he bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. He died because at that moment, he bore more sin in his body than anyone else in all of human history. He died because our sin was laid on him. Jesus was crucified on Good Friday in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, tells us that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. God breathed life into Adam, and that life was taken away. Jesus had life in his physical body, and that life was given away. Jesus died. This is the situation the disciples found themselves in in the very first Sunday morning of Easter. Jesus was dead. He was in a tomb. Their Savior, their friend, their master, dead. And the expectation that they had for Jesus was the same expectation that we have towards those who have passed on, that they will remain in the grave. But remember, Jesus, although like you, is distinct from you. He is different from you because his life is not borrowed like yours. It is not given to him from outside of him. He himself is life. This is why Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This verse teaches us that Jesus ultimately did not die because of the wounds inflicted upon him at the cross. He died because he laid down his physical life. Unlike you and I, he had the authority to lay it down. And unlike you and I, he had the authority from inside the grave to bring it back up again. Jesus reversed the curse of sin and death, and he walked out of that tomb alive. But what does that mean for you? What does that matter if someone came back to life 2,000 years ago? What is the relationship between his life and yours? Well, let's revisit the motion of death here for a moment. The sad reality is that every single person in this world, due to our sin nature, was born with a countdown clock over your head. It is invisible. You do not know what is on the countdown clock, but it is ticking and diminishing at a rapid pace. Every second, it is moving you closer to the grave, and you will only know the listed time when that clock reaches zero. I was recently watching a video, and in the background of this YouTube video, there was a man who was sitting at a desk, and on his wall was a poster. And it was a scratch-off poster of his life. What I mean by that is, every week represented, or every box represented one week of his life, and by the time he completely scratched off all of the boxes, it was supposed to be at the end of the average American male's lifespan. Now, so every week... He scratches that off in order to help himself number his days. But the reality is that the next square is not guaranteed. He might run out of boxes to scratch long before he dies. Or he may be in a box long before he finishes scratching. The only guarantee is that the wages of sin is death and that you will surely die. God has determined 
the length of your life. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God planned exactly the number of days that you would experience. God has numbered your time on the earth. That countdown clock is ticking away. But here is the key. You are more than what happens to you on this earth. Your existence is unending. That means that the child who dies at nine months old will exist for the exact amount of time that the person who dies when they are 99 years old. We will exist exactly the same amount of time, eternity, infinity, unending. This means that your life on the earth is a very small but very pivotal part of your reality. It is a limited part of your eternal experience, but what happens here determines what happens there. There are some who will go on to experience what the Bible calls eternal death or hell, and there are others who will go on to experience delight or eternal life or what the Bible calls heaven. And the difference between those destinations has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how you respond to it. If you've lived long enough, you have lost someone you love. You have lost them to the jaws of death, and you have felt the sorrow and loss that accompanies that awful curse. Jesus once had a conversation with a woman who was in that grieving state. She had lost her brother, Lazarus. He had died, and she was sad, and she was confused about why Jesus had not come sooner. Jesus, why weren't you here? You could have stopped this. You could have healed him so that he might live longer. And Jesus comforted her, but he didn't do so with soothing words without power. He didn't do so by changing the subject. He didn't do so by saying, oh, honey, it'll just be okay. No, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? At first glance, this phrase makes no sense. It makes no sense. Jesus is saying a paradoxical thing. First, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And secondly, he adds, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. How can Jesus say both, though he die and shall never die, right next to each other? Because you are both a physical and a spiritual being. So let me fill in the blanks here a little bit by way of paraphrasing to clarify which kind of life and death are being discussed by Jesus in this statement. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he will die physically, yet he shall live eternally. And everyone who has spiritual life by believing in me shall never die. That spiritual life will never end. This is possible because Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. He can guarantee this because he is this. Lazarus could not raise himself up from the dead. Lazarus was trapped. That was impossible. Jesus had to walk up to the tomb and cry out, Lazarus, come forth. But Jesus had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He not only has the power to give you physical life, which he is doing right now by his mercy, but he has the power and authority to give you spiritual life. Now, many of you in the room 
know what that means because you have experienced what happens when God makes you alive, when that dead spirit is brought to life. You know because God has radically transformed you and made you a new creation. But perhaps, perhaps you are here as a friend, but not as a saved person. Maybe you've heard the gospel a thousand times. Maybe you've sat in these chairs a thousand times. Maybe you have come to church for the first time. Maybe you are the kind of person who said, I'm going to walk in and walk out unchanged. I'm here for some reason, but I don't want to be. And maybe you zoned out all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 in the Garden of Eden. If that is you, let me just welcome you back to the discussion for a moment. Let me share with you what is more important for you than anything else in the universe. You desperately need spiritual life because you are spiritually dead. Let me ask you, what makes someone a Christian? A Christian is not a Christian just because they decide to be a Christian. A Christian is not someone who is just merely a person who agrees with a certain set of facts or Bible knowledge. A Christian is not a Christian because they read the Bible or because they go to church or because they are charitable. Yes, Christians do all of these thing, those things. They are, by definition, all of those things. But that is not what makes anyone a Christian. A person becomes a Christian when they hear the good news about Jesus Christ and they believe it. Now, that's our angle. That's the experiential side of the gospel. That is how we are transformed from our vantage point. It is the element of salvation that we see and that we feel and that we experience and that we describe as our testimony. But there is a spiritual side of you, and there is something occurring behind the scenes, what you do not see. Ephesians chapter 2 uses the death metaphor to explain that to us. It says, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here's the problem. A dead person cannot wake themselves up. That is true for physically dead people as well as spiritually dead people. There is no manipulation, there is no persuasion, there is no coercion that could ever cause someone who is spiritually dead to become spiritually alive. What I am saying to you is simply this. I can't bring you to life. What I am saying to you right now is that you can't bring yourself to life. The church cannot make you alive. You are completely helpless and absolutely hopeless apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the grace and mercy of a resurrected God. Ephesians chapter 2 continues and says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. Reminiscent of what occurred with Adam, there is something spiritually that occurs in us. We are made spiritually alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Salvation is when your spirit goes from death to life. So friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are still spiritually dead. And if you leave the earth in that state, then you will experience eternal death. There is nothing more waiting for you than the fearful expectation of eternal judgment. And I do not want that for you. The stimulant that the Lord uses to awaken us to salvation is what the Bible calls the gospel. The word just means good news. What is our message? It is the good news. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 
And this good news is the message that we carry, that though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you can be made alive in Jesus Christ. So believe that he died for you. Trust that he has risen from the dead for you. Believe that he conquered death and sin and hell forever for you. Turn from your wickedness, leave your sin behind, and follow Jesus, and you will be saved. Now, I want to make a little bit of a shift here and speak for the remainder of our time to those who know Jesus Christ. I think that's probably the majority of people here in this room. We want to know what it means for us. What does this message of life mean for those who have already experienced it? I want us to consider the good news of the gospel that we have already believed, and I want us to be reminded of the promises of the empty tomb for us. I encourage you uh, this afternoon sometime, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at home, maybe with your family. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a chapter where Paul is defending the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, if that didn't happen, then there's no point in being a Christian at all, because we are of most people to be most pitied. Read that chapter. There's a million things in it that you will be blessed by and encouraged by and astounded by, and you'll probably even come away with a lot of questions because it's too much to, to absorb in one sitting. We're just going to scratch the surface of a very little portion of that chapter right now. Paul declares, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This means that you and I must experience physical death because the kingdom of God that we are going to enter is not like the world. This body that you inhabit has been corrupted by sin, and because that has occurred, this body cannot enter into heaven itself. You must experience physical death. Our perishable bodies cannot inherit the imperishable promises of heaven. So Paul continues and says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal, that's us, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. He conquered death, and now he allows us to conquer death. There is no more sting in it for us. The paradigm of death has radically been altered for every single Christian. The equation has changed. There is no need any longer to fear it. One of the great French hymns of the 1700s was translated into English in a beautifully poetic way to help us remember these promises. I want to share with you the lyrics of this hymn. It says, It is not death to die, to leave this weary road. And to join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you forevermore. O oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save, and those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you truly are immortal. There is no one who can take your eternity from you. 
The message that we carry is the message of life. It is the promise of life. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-10 through 10 says it this way. Paul says to his protege, Timothy, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who did what? Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This good news has brought life and immortality to light for all who believe. The gospel message that we carry is life. Jesus, who is the life, freely gives us life. His resurrection promises us an inheritance of life. So for the Christian, death is nothing more than a door into heaven and glory itself. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Think of that language. That is creation. That is a kind of resurrection. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That inheritance that cannot be lost by you or by be taken from you, that inheritance was won for you by, as it says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have the promise that the moment we close our eyes in death, we will open them again in glory. And this frees us from every fear that we would hold of death. If you read secular psychology, which I have unfortunately read a great deal of, you will find that everything they talk about has to do with the fact that humans are all afraid of their mortality. Everything we do is a way to run from the fact that eventually we are going to expire. But thanks be to God, we have the promise of life. We have the promise that we have no need to fear. We have no need to grieve the way that the world does. Now, I want to speak to this in regard to not yourself, but those around you who die in the Lord. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Don't be uninformed about those who are asleep, meaning dead, that you may not grieve as others do with no hope. We have hope for those who have gone before us to the Lord. Death is never a good thing. Let's not pretend for a moment that death is just some small thing or weightless thing. It is a huge thing. It is a problem. It is a curse. It is always an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it is the last enemy to be destroyed. It is never a good thing. But God, as he so often does, will use even the worst things to result in his glory and our good. And Jesus encountered all that we deserved, and he succumbed to all that we had earned so that he might conquer all that we have feared in death. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is the message of life. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not expire, should not die, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I ask that today for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, they would hear the message of life and that you would give them life. Just like you breathed into the physical body of Adam, I pray now that through your spirit you would breathe life 
and give immortality to those in this room who are currently spiritually dead. And God, I pray for those of us who know you, who love you, who have been redeemed by you, that you would give us a proper understanding of both life and death, that we would live for eternity, that we would live for you, and that we would not fear that day, and that we would not think little of what you have done at the cross. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that the resurrection means everything for us. For if we have, if we have been joined with Christ, we will be raised with him. So, Father God, I pray that you would help each one of us here to love you more, to be zealous for you more, to delight in you more because of what we have heard today. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.